You're listening to the official podcast of Church Untitled, located in downtown Vancouver. We are a community set apart to bear His name, in our city, for His glory. We hope that you're blessed and enriched by this message. So we have this story, this this narrative that Jesus himself, we have to know this, this is Jesus, not some rude man that's having a bad day. This is the son of God, God himself communicating to his church. And he says to them some pretty harsh things, some pretty like in your face things. Now, if you read the passage of scripture, there's in in Revelation, first couple chapters, there's, there's seven different churches that Jesus writes to. And most of them, I think if not all of them, except this one, he says something encouraging to begin with. He says, you're, you're crushing it at this. You're doing great at this. There's something that you're doing that I like, and I'm going to point to it. But with these guys, Laodiceans, he doesn't say anything like that. He just said, I'm the amen, the faithful one, the one that was here at the beginning that initiated all of this. Everything that you're doing started in me. The breath that you breathe, it started from me. The ground that you're on, I created it. Everything that you put your hand to, it began in me. This is how he begins. And then he says this, you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. But because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. I'm going to vomit you out, Jesus is saying. These are some pretty harsh words, but we have to understand why he's saying these things. See, the town, this city of Laodicea, it was in a place particular to this comment here is in a place where there was two streams of water that would come in, one from this city and one from another city. One actually came from hot springs. And so the water that would come in and travel to the city was actually hot. And then there was some very cool, refreshing water coming from a different place. And those two streams of water would actually converge and come together and run down a single conduit. But of course, if hot water comes in contact with cold water, it becomes lukewarm water. Right, And so he's actually giving a picture. He's actually stepping into their context and explaining his thoughts towards them in the the environment that they live in. Right, So he's not just coming up with aggressive and rude language to speak. If he was going to say these things to me, I'm pretty sure he would say it like this. I wish you were hot coffee or cold brew because lukewarm coffee sucks and I'm going to spit it out my mouth. So if God was speaking to me, he would say exactly that. And I'd be like, oh, I get it. You're absolutely right. Because that's my context. My wife will tell you that I drink a lot more coffee than I do water. So lukewarm water to me is like, I can deal with this. It's not a big deal. But when it comes to coffee, my gosh. So what I'm getting at here is that there's a very specific language that Jesus is speaking to a very specific group of people. But we have to understand his intent and his heart within it. So when he's saying... Cold water is refreshing. It actually has a very uh, purposeful uh, meaning, purposeful purpose, purpose. It has a purpose in your life. It's going to refresh you on a really, really hot day or a hot water. It's soothing and it's medicinal. There's a purpose to being cold. There's a purpose to being hot. But lukewarm water, it actually, it has no effect whatsoever. In fact, when those streams would come together and it would move down a conduit or an aqueduct, there was minerals course they don't have nice pvc plastic like we do today or pipes to go through it was it was like makeshift things stone and clay and rock and all these things that the water would move through and by the time it got a few meters or it went and traveled down it was actually full of minerals and it tasted really 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 bad 
So it wasn't just lukewarm water. Jesus is referencing the water in that pipe, in that conduit. And he says, if I get a taste of that, I got to spit it out my mouth. He's saying there's no purpose in being lukewarm. So much so, I'm not even going to tolerate it. It's going to come out of the mouth. This is the context that he's speaking, right? Jesus says this in scripture, that if salt loses its saltiness, then it actually has no purpose. It loses its purpose. And so he's explaining this through the water. And so Jesus presents these people with a problem. He said, this is the issue. You are lukewarm. I wish you were something else. And he gets very specific in these things. He calls them blind. He calls them wretched. He calls them pitiful. He he calls them like naked. And he says, you are all of these things, but you don't even know it. I advise you to go and buy from me these things. White clothes to cover your nakedness. Wealth so that you can actually truly be wealthy. Come to me for these things. See, another piece of context is that Jesus isn't just saying white clothes for the sake of saying white clothes or wealth for the sake of wealth. He's identifying an issue. Salve for the eyes. He's, He's speaking to something within their culture. So particularly when it comes to context here, he says salve for the eyes because they actually had uh, available to them many minerals that they would make into ointment for their eyes. They would treat their own woundedness. They would treat their own blindness with salve. Historically, this is explained through archaeology. They also had very, very famous black cotton available to them. So he's saying stop making yourself, adorning yourself with beautiful clothes that, that you think is actually covering your nakedness and covering your shame and all of these things and presenting yourself as beautiful. You know, on the inside, you don't know what beautiful is. Come to me and I'll give you white clothes to cover your shameful nakedness. Laodicea was also a, a, a place of extreme wealth, incredible wealth. And they were very self-reliant because they had everything that they needed. And so Jesus is saying, you think you have wealth, But if you came to me, you would find out what true wealth really is. See, he's speaking to his church. He's not speaking to a group of unbelievers. He's speaking to a a group of believers. And so we can infer then that the problem wasn't that they did not have Jesus. They had Jesus. The problem then is this, is that they didn't need Jesus. They had him, but they didn't need him. Their needs were fulfilled in their own ingenuity, in their own prosperity, right? The black wool, the eye treatment, the wealth from trade. For example, there was a a, a devastating earthquake in Laodicea. History tells us this in the first century. And because they had so much wealth and the pride that went with the accumulation of wealth, Rome sent them um, aid for the devastation that came through the earthquake, much that we would see our government do. But they actually sent all of those finances back to Rome because they said, we have everything we need to rebuild. We don't need your wealth. We're independent this way. So it gives you a picture into their thinking, into their mindset. And you can understand then that if Jesus offered them something, they're like, we actually don't need your healing. We don't need your wealth. We don't need you to cover these shame because we have everything put together for ourselves. We're talking about Christians here. We're talking about believers. And so we venture into this buzzword that we have today. I'm going to have it up on the screen here, and it's called secular humanism. Secular humanism is this. Humanism, by definition, humanism with regard in particular to the belief that humanity is capable of morality 
and self-fulfillment without belief in God. Secular humanism. But as I said, this wasn't commentary on secular humanity, but it was commentary by Jesus on his own church. So we can't call it secular humanism then. So what then do we call it? Christian humanism. It's a crazy paradox, but, but it's actually what it is. It's Christian humanism. It made its way into the church, and it's very similar to uh, another phrase that we have today, which is this idea culturally of post-Christianity. Right? Post-Christianity is this, that we want to take part in the fruit of Christianity while neglecting its source. That we want to live in a world that was actually made available through the doctrine and through the life of the Word of God, the things that He did and established in this world through His Word and through His people. We now live in, a, in, in an age that has been set up by these things, but now we want to reject the source of those things. So we want justice. We want peace. We want the kingdom of God. We, want the, we don't want the king of the kingdom. And so the Laodiceans are claiming the name of God, yet not relying on him for the things that he wants to give them. Does this make sense to you? Are we setting up Laodicea? Now, as I said, this is going to be a series, and so I'm, I'm, I'm doing this work to lay a foundation for you, so when anybody else comes up here and speaks, it's upon this context. So lock in for a little bit. And so... This idea of post-Christianity, which I think is relevant to us, that the Lord would say to us, in the same context he said to them, it's this idea of having a wife or having a spouse, a husband, that you don't actually live with. Like my wife and I, we have contract with each other. We have covenant with each other. There's certain benefits that I get with her being my wife, tax benefits. There's certain things that come. Yeah, no joke. There's certain status that I get in this world. Because of, the, of the, the attributes that come with being married. But I don't actually have to live with or have intimacy or commune with my wife to get those things. So we have contract, but we don't have relationship. It's the same thing that Jesus is saying. I wish you would come to me and get these things because you and I are covenant. You and I are together. I wish we could function in the relationship that I died to give you. This is what he's saying to Laodicea. But they're saying right back, I have you, but I don't need you. I get the benefits of claiming the name of Christ. But none of those benefits are actually shared in intimacy together. So can we open up our hearts in this moment and see what God is saying to us in this context? See, Jesus diagnoses the problem. He said, you're wretched, you're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked, right? This sounds like a really, really harsh rebuke, but we get some insight in the original language, which was Greek, and there was a little a suffix at the end of all of those words that indicated that everything Jesus was saying them, to them was from a place of compassion. You're pitiful. You're, I don't even know if I could say that word with compassion. You're blind. Like, don't you know it? And to me, what, what it sounds like is like a doctor giving a diagnosis that has really, really, really good bedside manner. Right? Like, you, you, have, you have cancer. We're, we're going to need to address this issue. Like, you, you can't go on living this way thinking that you don't because there's an issue. And I need you to know it. And that issue's not being 
I'm not condemning you about this issue. I'm saying we need to deal with this issue. And so I need you to sit down and realize the depths of it right now. There's so much compassion in the way that Jesus is speaking to these people. He's not blasting them and saying, you're stupid. And he's not condescending them. He's not doing these things, which we'll see a little bit as we walk further in this. It's good bedside manner by God, the great physician. And he says, because I love you, I rebuke and discipline you. And so rebuke and discipline are actually functions of God's love, right? And this word love, if you know anything about Greek, the word love, there's three different definitions. There's eros, there's agape, and there's philia or phylos in this case. And this word phylos, when he says love, is this idea of brotherly affection, right? Philadelphia being the city of brotherly love. And it's from this word here, philo, it means this like interactive relationship and friendship that I have. And so Jesus is saying it's because I love you and we have a relationship with each other. There's affection involved with our relationship. This is why I rebuke and I discipline you. Right? It's the equivalent of my wife and I saying this, that we're married, we love each other, and we have all the other types of love going on, the agape and the eros, all of those things, because that's what has, God has called us to. But if I'd say that my wife is my best friend, which she is, that means that I have phylos love with her. This is what Jesus is saying. We're, we're supposed to be friends. We're supposed to interact this way together. And so it's, it's very similar to my son, Ethan. When he gets really, really upset or has a tantrum, I send him to his room. Most often, I have to drag him to his room, get him in there, lock the door. By the way, parents, genius move. I put the lock on the outside of the door because he knows how to break out of that room. But when he's calmed down and when he has, like, burned through all of his tears and all of his anger, all these things, I go into his room and I sit down and he comes and climbs on my lap and he gives me a big hug. And I would say to Sarah early on, I would look forward to those moments where he needed to be disciplined. Because after I disciplined and after I I said, you need to repent, I'm rebuking you. You can't do this in my house. This is not what Johnsons do. He comes and he sits on my lap and he gives me a hug. And I know without words, he's saying, I never want to do this again. I want to live in this moment. I want to be intimate with you. I want to love you. I want to be loved by you. And this is what Jesus gets from us if we have a healthy relationship with him when he sits us down and he says, my children, do not do this. If you're in relationship with me, we don't function this way. And when we hear that rebuke and we run into a wall, so to speak, and we have the temper tantrum and all these things, we come back and we sit on his lap and we have phylos love with God. This is why he rebukes and he disciplines us. I literally look forward to it with my son. Not because I'm an abusive father, but because I know it's a moment where we're actually going to grow closer together. Can you see God's love coming through? And so he gives them a diagnosis. He tells them the problem. And then he says something else. He says, but you don't know that you are these things. You have no clue that you are this way. So I want to share a definition with you. It's a syndrome. It's a real thing. It's called Anton's syndrome. Patients who have occipital lobe damage in their eyes. These patients actually lack insight into their disease and deny their blindness. Blind people that aren't aware that they're blind and deny that they're blind. So I'm walking around and I walk into a pool and I'm blind and I still won't admit that I'm blind. Classically, patients with this syndrome dismiss the diagnosis, 
confabulate visions, which means they actually make up things in their minds. Whether it's intentional or unintentional, I don't know. It seems like it's unintentional. And they have visions, and they claim because of those visions that they're not blind. See, the problem wasn't the problem in Jesus' rebuke. It was the lack of awareness of any problem that was the problem. They didn't realize that they were blind. They didn't realize that they were doing something wrong. They didn't realize they were walking in a different direction. See, by not accepting our own insufficiency and weakness, we are unavailable to receive what he wants to give us. Jesus had to show them what they did not have so that they could reach out and receive it from him. They were lacking vision. In other words, they were lacking light. See, darkness or the, or the lack of light, so to speak, is the same as blindness. Blindness isn't saying that you have a thing. It's saying that you don't have a thing. It's not saying you, you've caught blindness. It's saying that you've, caught, you've lost vision. You've, you've lost sight of something. And so Jesus isn't saying you're wrong for these things. He's saying you just don't have the thing that you need. And I have to show you your blindness so that you could reach out for the thing that you need. So what Jesus is getting at with us and with them is that if we're reliant on things to solve our problems, we're missing the opportunity for Jesus to solve our problems. And missing the opportunity for Jesus to solve our problems, I have other things to say before I say this, but I'm going to say it is missing an opportunity for intimacy with Jesus which is the goal, which is the prize, which is heaven, which is everything to us. But if you're in a place in your life where you don't know the value of intimacy with Jesus, then none of this matters at all. Darkness is the absence of light. You can't have the presence of darkness. See, it was the absence, to repeat myself, it was the absence of light that was being called out. It was the absence of the reality of Jesus that was being called out. So Jesus isn't saying, you guys are horrible people. He's just telling them that they don't have what they need. But here's the thing. You have to, have to, have to acknowledge that it's dark to prompt you to turn on the light. I don't turn on the light unless it's dark. It's the most brilliant thing I've ever said, right? (laughs) Just letting it sink in. You don't turn on the light unless it's dark. Sometimes I got to say the super obvious things to help myself understand. The point of all of this is not what you've done wrong. The point is what you're missing. Right? Remember this old hymn? I hope you do. Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He calls himself a wretch. And that's Okay. We live in an age where this is like the most distasteful thing ever to be confronted with your own weakness. For anybody to say something that you don't like about yourself, it's like, you can't say that about me. I'm an individual. I do what I want. I'm going to go find another group of friends or people that will affirm the way that I am. What about a God who will call out the things that, that aren't beneficial to you? Because he sees something that you don't. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. He had to admit it. He was lost, but now I'm found. It was blind, but now I see. See, I want to know where I stand in the way of my relationship with Jesus. I need to know what's holding me back. 
At first, the reality of that stings. But through that sting and through that pain, I encounter his mercy and his grace. The opportunity to be confronted with darkness is the door that opens up my way to Jesus. I'm broken and I need him. And now I receive the grace to empower me and change through that darkness. When we receive him, we receive heaven like we talked about last week. There's a flip side to this coin, though. We know our weakness, but we try to solve our problems before we present them to Jesus. Now, being confronted with my weakness, let me tidy that up a little bit before I go and find you, God. You've been there before. Dr. Jonathan, where are you at? Are you in the room? Right? How many times you get people like, he's a dentist, by the way. Like, you've been going for cleaning at the dentist, and you got to do whatever it takes to get your teeth as clean as possible before you go get them clean at the dentist. <laughs> right? Because I don't want the dentist, the great physician, to know that I haven't been cleaning my teeth. Right? It's the same thing with Jesus, I think. We're confronted sometimes with our weaknesses, with our illnesses, with the things that aren't great. And we go to try to fix those things before we enter, go back to Jesus. And we say, Jesus, I fixed all that. Now can we be friends? He said, no, I want to love you through all of those things. I'm the great physician. I'm the one that can walk you through all these things. So I need you to allow me to walk you through them. There's this guy named Leonid Ragazov. Has anybody heard of this man before? Okay, I'm excited to tell you. (laughs) So there was this expedition that came from the USSR to Antarctica. Right? There was this, just what they do, like the expansion of, they wanted more territory or whatever. They just wanted to go find out what was down there. I don't know if they're flat earthers or not, wanted to see if they could go off the edge of the universe. But anyways, another topic for another day. The earth is round, guys. Okay. Controversy. Um, and so there was an expedition, and they went down to Antarctica. But this guy was actually a doctor, Leonid Ragazov. And when he was in Antarctica, he was the only doctor. And he got this thing called appendicitis when he was in Antarctica. And so if you don't deal with appendicitis, if you don't take the appendix out, then you will die. Like toxins will move through your body and take you out. But there was nobody there to do it for him. Have you felt like this before? Like you're confronted with your issues and then you're like on Antarctica (laughs) and there's nothing, there's nobody, there's no chance for healing, there's no chance for wholeness. So what do you do? He grabbed a mirror, and he sat there with a scalpel, and he took out his own appendix. I'm afraid that we live on Antarctica at times. We try to do self-surgery. We try to deal with. We try to manage. We try to work out our issues. Even if you do take out your appendix, (laughs) you may one big mess of a scar there afterwards. We have to get to the place where we can allow the Lord to speak to us about where we're at so that our eyes could be opened, so that light could come in, and then our hearts would be full. That's the flip side of the coin. We need to know that it's okay. And me as a pastor, as a leader, I need to know that it's okay for me to have problems. And if I can have problems, then you can have problems. Because my problems, all they are, are an open door for me to have communion with God. God did not come to save those who did not need to be saved. The great physician didn't come for those who are healthy. 
He did not come for those who were righteous. He came for those who were sick, in need, those who are unrighteous, which is all of us. But we have to admit that we don't have what it takes to receive what, it, what he is. Clear eyes, full hearts. And then he gets to his promise. He says this in verse 20. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. Right? I want you to imagine this with me. We're on Antarctica by ourselves. We just went through that. We realize that we have appendicitis. And then someone knocks at the door. Jesus does all of the work. He gets all the way to the door of your life. And he says, I've come this far. You don't have to go and find me. You don't have to search for me. I traveled the world to get to you. All I'm doing is knocking. What you have to do is let me in. Will you hear the voice, the knock of the Lord in your pain, in your suffering, in your blindness to let him in? He says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. And that language there about that table is actually language from the Song of Solomon. He's talking about intimacy between a husband and a wife. That same story that I told you about me and my wife, that if we have contracted with each other and we're not living with each other anymore, we're not sharing intimacy with each other, yet we have a contract, it's me as a husband coming home to my wife saying, I want that back with you. I need to be with you. I want to share life again with you. And I'm knocking at the door, but she has to let me in. Can't force my way back into that thing. Jesus is not speaking to non-believers. He's speaking to Christians, which needs to indicate to us that we have the potential within our lives to live this secular, I'm sorry, Christian humanism thing. Where we have a relationship with God, yet we're not receiving the benefits of the relationship with God. I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Ben, Sam, you can come back up. Jesus does all the work. He comes to you. All you have to do is let him in. So you may be in your life right here, right now. And you're like, I've let Jesus into my house. I've let him into the door of my life. But if you're human, there's probably many doors in the life, in your life that you have. Many doors in the house of your life, I should say. That you may have let him into your life, but he's standing there knocking on the doors that you haven't let him into yet. Maybe it's finances. Maybe it's sexuality. Maybe it's trauma. Maybe it's disappointment. Maybe it's dreams. Maybe it's fulfillment, what it means to actually be fulfilled in life. And Jesus is saying, let me into that place. I'm knocking. If you would just hear my voice, I would come and dine with you. And you would dine with me. We would have intimacy. We would desire relationship again. This is what the Lord is prompting in us right now. But see, if you don't see the table, intimacy with God is something to be treasured. There's no way that you're going to go through everything that happens before that. So Jesus in his goodness presents a problem and he gives a solution. But We have to understand that there's a promise that comes first. There's a promise of communion with God, of intimacy with him that is the greatest thing that your life could encounter. I don't care who you are, where you're from, what you've walked through in life, relationship with Jesus, intimacy with him, presence and communion with God is the greatest treasure this life has to offer you. It's the greatest thing in the world. Is there anybody in this room that agrees with this? 
that this is what I live for, that he is worth more than any dollar that I could find in my life, that his clothing of my life goes way further than the clothing of my own, that I could search for ways to cover my weakness and my illness, but if I would just go to him, he would make me wealthier than I could ever be in my whole life, that he would give me riches that last into eternity that he would give me clothes that would cover any pain, any shame, any brokenness of my past. And he's saying, stop trying to figure this out on your own. You and I have a relationship with each other. Come to me for these things and I'll give them to you. Thanks for listening to the Church Untitled podcast. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on our latest messages. For more about what's happening in our community, follow us on social media or visit us at churchuntitled.com.